Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is a podcast for anyone interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook, The Ultimate Guide to Setting and Achieving Sales Goals. In it, you'll discover how to set sales goals, how to track your progress, how to avoid common pitfalls, and more. Be sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 256. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and today I'm speaking to the managing partner at Working Simply. It's a business productivity consulting company that helps clients build high-performance workforces so their people can leverage their productivity strengths. She is a productivity consultant, a leadership coach, a speaker, and the author of Work Simply, Embracing the Power of Your Personal Productivity Style. She was also named one of LinkedIn's top voices in management and workplace, and she's been published in the Harvard Business Review, Forbes, the New York Times, and Fast Company, among others. She is based in lovely Charlotte, North Carolina, one of my favorite cities I haven't been to in way too long. We are so glad to have you here. Welcome to the show, Carson Tate. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. I'm so glad to be with you. Yeah, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. So Carson, I just shared a few highlights from your bio, but could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Maybe talk about um, the key stops on the journey to where you are today. Sure. So I started my career in banking um, and a big financial services company, and I realized that I wanted to be on the line. So I actually went into outside sales and I went to, yes. So I have carried a bag, as we like to say, and I went to work for Bristol Myers Squibb and I loved every minute of it. Um, When I was in Big Pharma, they gave you a car, a computer, and a credit card and told you to go. (laughs) <laughs> and it was, it was my first taste of entrepreneurship and building a business and sales, and I loved every minute of it. And it was there that I, I go back to. That's where my entrepreneurial journey started because I had a territory in Charlotte that had been inactive, so I had to grow that territory. And I was successful. And one reason I was successful, not only did I love sales, but I also loved productivity and being organized and efficient. And so what I realized is if I had systems and processes and my little checklist, I could do everything that I promised to my physicians and not only hit my sales targets, but exceed my sales targets. So while I was working for Bristol-Myers Squibb, I figured out a, a system. Many of your listeners can probably relate to this one. They changed our comp plan. Mm. And, and you know what happens with salespeople when you start to, to play with the money. And so instead of being paid on new growth and maintaining market share, we now have this third metric around having to see a targeted list of folks. And as you can imagine, a lot of the folks on that list didn't drive our business, but now we had to go see them. So I figured out this routing system worked really well for me, started sharing it with my colleagues. It worked really well with them. And then it went viral. And I was like, okay, I think there's a business here. How can uh-huh. you help people optimize performance? How can productivity really drive performance? And so I turned in my bag and became an entrepreneur. That is awesome. I love that that way that you developed kind of a passion for productivity because you realized you needed it. And I feel like anytime you um, you build a business around something that you learned that way, that can be a really powerful um, seed to start the business. Absolutely. And what I got to do, Elizabeth, which was really great, is I also got to test it on myself and mm-hmm. then help my colleagues. And so it was a, you know, it was a great win to field test 
first with me, then with them. Are these systems actually viable in business? I mean, do they generate results? Because at the end of the day, having an organized list just for the heck of it, no one cares about that. This is about driving sales. Absolutely. I, I really love that. And I feel like um, I know you have developed some some core best practices for improving productivity. And I love that you go back to that foundation, first of all, of just the point of this is not that people are happier at the end of the day, although that's great. The point of this is not that people can you know, cross off their list, that they responded to every email or that they made all of their calls. The point is the result of those activities that you're <laughs> allowing people to drive. And I think sometimes people focus on that that first part, like the what, without focusing on the why. And so I love that, that you brought it back to that because that, that should be what it's all about. Absolutely. And I think so often, Elizabeth, and I know you see this with your clients and we see it as well, is it's how do you filter through the noise? Because at the end of the day, it's about impact, not output. And so I need those systems and strategies and methodologies that really drive those results, regardless of what industry that you're in. But we're in sales. We got to put numbers on the board. That's the most important thing. Impact, not output. Love that because um, especially something that I've recently been um, hearing a lot in in, anal- uh, in analysis of productivity, you know, um, personal productivity, the, the business productivity has actually not increased as much as people would have expected considering all the technology that we have. And one of the, the theories about why that is, is we're spending so much time feeling like we're working, feeling like we're being productive but it's not actually driving any sort of impact or outcome. You know, again, it's, you could send a billion emails a day. And if that doesn't move something forward, what was the point of those billion emails that you sent? And I think there's a lot that's happening in normal business that's not actually driving an output or an outcome, not driving an impact, but it's just kind of busy work. Um, And I would imagine that that's something that you really have to um, pay attention to when you work with your clients. Absolutely. Well, and we also have to acknowledge first that the busy work on some level feels good because you Mm -hmm. feel like there's forward momentum. So we want to acknowledge that it does feel like you're getting something done, but it's just not linked to results. So when we work with our clients, we want to get really clear on what success looks like and what it feels like. And we always talk about when do we celebrate? Is success so clear that we know when to celebrate? And in sales is pretty cut and dry. But we do want to look at the activity that surrounds sales and make sure that it is aligned to the results. And so it's a series of questions around the clarity. And it's a a yes and game. So we'll ask a sales Mm -hmm. leader, right? Tell us, (laughs) tell me about this report. Oh, this was a report for such and such. Okay. Yes. And, and we keep yes anding until we can get to the bottom and distill down what's the real use of this report and why I'm filling it out. And it's not done in any way to, you know, to undermine your leadership or question you, but it's in a way to gain that clarity. So you can say no to more of the activity swirl that pulls your team off of driving for those results. I, I really love that. And I, I love that term activity swirl. We had a client 
um, this was a few years ago, who, um, I won't mention their company name, but they they basically described it as their company name Swirl. And they would always say, you know, um, yes, it might make sense to pull that big group together to meet to discuss this. But if we do, it's going to result in the blank name Swirl. And um, they, they had kind of an internal mandate that any time you could avoid that Swirl, you had to do that, whether it was not having a meeting or um, not inviting certain people to the meeting. And you need sometimes the consensus. You need that input. But if you know it's going to result in that just kind of cycling, um, mm-hmm. just back back and back and forth and, and nothing ever moving forward, somebody has to be the one to call it and say, you know what? We're swirling. This is not making any progress. We're just going to make a decision and go somewhere. Um, otherwise, mm-hmm. you're not ever going to get anywhere. <laughs> you're exactly right. It's just busy work. Absolutely. We actually had a client, this was years ago, but um, I was. it was a very big project. And so I was stationed on site for maybe three, four months. And there were people, and I honestly, I, I saw them every day for months. I don't think they ever did anything but take their little laptops and go from one meeting to the next meeting to the next meeting to the next meeting all day, every day. And mm-hmm. what then they would do is they were trying to accomplish other work during meetings because they were in meetings all the time. So they were half paying attention to the meeting and half doing their work, which doesn't work at all. They were participating in meetings that they couldn't really make any contribution to, partly because they were focusing on their work and partly because there just was this culture of let's invite everybody to every meeting. Mm-hmm. And there was a reason they needed to hire us for a big project <laughs> because it was you had an entire basically middle management level that was stifled and prevented from doing anything. All they were doing was endless meetings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that is, and it's frustrating for all parties. And it's particularly mm-hmm. frustrating for the folks that are stuck in that meeting heck. There's another word we want to call it, but it's, <laughs> that sounds like they're right for our, our meeting revolution program. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So I'd love to hear um, some of the like basic principles and best practices that you've developed and discovered over time for improving productivity. What are some of the kind of foundational principles that you feel like people need to understand? Mm-hmm. So the first foundational principle that we teach our clients is that time is a commodity. So this mm. is a little bit of a paradigm shift because we all think about very carefully, we think about the dollars in our wallets. And mm-hmm. if I came to you, Elizabeth, and said, hey, Elizabeth, it's going to be spring, summer. I'd love to get a new pair of sandals. Will you give me $10 for them? It's $10 more than I want to pay. You, you would say, Carson, you're crazy. Absolutely not. I don't even know why you asked me that question. But if I came to you and said, hey, Elizabeth, can I get on your calendar for 30 minutes to brainstorm um, some new podcast ideas? the default is you'd probably say yes to me. Mm -hmm. And so the foundational principle for our clients is, are you thinking about your time as intentionally, as carefully as you think about your dollars? And where are you giving it away? Because every time you Mm. say yes, you're saying no to something else. So when we think about sales, this swirl of activity, a lot of the admin, Mm -hmm. that's not necessarily an investment in our commodity for the highest return. So we're saying yes to some of the swirl of this work, which means we're saying no, prospecting, cultivation, relationship development, continuing education. 
So the foundational piece is, can I get you to be as thoughtful and intentional with your time as you are with the revenue? That is absolutely huge. And um, I think so many people just really don't consider it that way. Because like you said, um, especially right there at the end, I talk to so many salespeople, you know, dozens a week, maybe sometimes more than that. And the the most common thing that they're saying that they don't get done is the the proactive stuff. It's the prospecting. It's the relationship maintenance with people who don't have an active opportunity at the moment. Because right. all they're doing when it comes to selling is handling what's in front of them. And they're constantly just trying to knock the net. Oh, I've got to respond to that email. I've got to put, the, put together the proposal for the person I met with last week. I've got to give feedback on this other thing. And they're not you know, dedicating that time to the proactive stuff that nobody is bothering you to do because you're the one who needs to drive it forward. And so the thing that constantly falls off their calendar is the one thing that's most important to driving business. And all of us, it doesn't matter if you're in sales or something else, we all have things like that. There's the thing that you know needs to get done, but Mm -hmm. you're the one who has to get it started or has to do it completely. There's nobody that's kind of bugging you for it. And it's really mm-hmm. easy to respond to the people bugging you and not do that thing that you're the only one that can get started. Absolutely. And it's a, and we intentionally, Elizabeth, that that talk about is terms of an investment because we know that it is an investment in our future, but it doesn't have that immediate payoff. And that is where the rub a little bit, I think, comes when you start to think about time as a commodity is that you are completely at choice and control over your 168 hours a week. And it's making some of those longer term intentional investment decisions to reach out to your folks that you've had a relationship with in the past, but currently might not be a current client and prospecting and getting out in front of new folks. It's hard. Absolutely. And I think actually the reason that people don't do it is it's so easy to do the stuff that's not hard <laughs> and to feel like, um, and, and I know that was kind of an, an unintentional play on words, but it, it, it's hard to drive yourself, right? It's it's usually the more difficult, unpleasant task. Um, nobody, well, not nobody, not many people really, really love like just down in the dirt, basic level prospecting. It's, it's one of those things that most people view as kind of a necessary evil. And there are some people that are super good at it and some people that have learned to find joy and satisfaction. But a lot of salespeople would say, you know, if they hand on a Bible, it's their least favorite part of their job. And so right. it's really easy. It's the least favorite part of your job. It's something that, again, nobody except your manager who's, you know, maybe looking at the stats, nobody is going to force you to do it. And so you do all the other things that are kind of easier to do. It's easy to say yes. It's easy not to rock the boat. It's easy to just get pulled into things and, and buffeted by the wind. And if you don't view your time as a commodity that is limited, um, you don't really it think about all of the things that, like you said, that you're saying no to without even realizing it because you're saying yes to things that you probably shouldn't say yes to. Exactly. And it's that unconsciousness that for our team, first and foremost, we want to wake people up and just see. And mm. I do want to say, Elizabeth, this is really important. There is no judgment. There's no mm-hmm. good or bad. When we start working with our clients and we start working with sales teams, we do call it an investment statement analysis. So we're looking at your calendar, which is your investment statement. So if time is a commodity, your calendar is my accounting of my time. 
there's no judgment. We just have to know current state because we got to wake you up so you're aware of where the current time goes. So then your choice, you can start to make some different choices. So that that's just step one is that awareness. And then the second step is the acceptance. And then once you're, you see current state and you know what you want more of, what you want less of, you made that decision, then we can start to drop in strategies and tools to help you make different investment decisions around your time. Absolutely. And I, I really just, I, that framing resonates so strongly with me because I think most of the framing that we hear when it comes to productivity is very blame oriented. And it just, it, you know, we feel guilt and shame over, you know, we don't feel like we're productive. We, we, you know, we feel like we're wasting time and there's a lot of really negative words. And I don't think that necessarily that's a bad thing. Um, Sometimes you just have to accept reality, but if you can be a little bit more objective, like you are about it, you know, um, it just, it is what it is. You're, you're spending time where you're spending time. It's actually funny now that you think about it, that we use the word spending time, just like it is a, an investment. Um, is. You're, you're spending time where you're spending time. And we need to just, first of all, acknowledge and, and evaluate that um, because it's just a fact. It's not a judgment. It's a fact. And then you can actually make those decisions for improvement. Um, but I think because there's that negative feeling about it, there's that guilt, there's that shame, then people hide. And so we lie to ourselves and to other people about where we're spending our time because we're ashamed of it. Absolutely. And there's no shame because a lot of this is unconscious. So I would give an example of, are you going to shame someone for their eating habits if they have not had an opportunity to maybe take a nutrition class? or Mm -hmm. learn or read about fruits and vegetables and the health. They just didn't have that information. So Mm -hmm. weren't aware, didn't, so we can't judge them for it. It's the same thing. We're not aware of what's currently going on with our time. There's no judgment. We're just looking to see. And I like this exercise with salespeople because we can quantify it. Mm. So, you know, it's, I mean, we would get weeklies when I worked for Bristol. I mean, the number is a number. Okay. I've Mm -hmm. now got some data. So data. Now let me look at it. And now I'm going to do some analysis and I'm going to make some different choices based on the data that's presented to me. Okay. Again, it's, we're just, we're keeping it very quantitative, very analytical. And then we move into joint choice and different strategies to achieve a different outcome. That, um, like you said, sales is a really unique field. Very And that there are not many jobs that are so obviously measured. And it's not just the big picture measurement, although probably every company is measuring revenue by salesperson. You know, how much did you actually sell? But most companies and especially bigger companies, they're measuring all kinds of other things. You know, sales and maybe customer service is the other one that gets a lot of measurement. You know, how long did you stay on the phone um, Mm -hmm. and stuff? Uh, But with sales, it's how many dials did you make? How many customers did you talk to? What was the output of each call? How many voicemails versus how many people did you connect to? And there are automated systems and there are self-reporting systems that are measuring all of this stuff. So it's a it's a real opportunity for some in-depth analysis and um, and you know, just evaluation because you have that information. Whereas if you're just looking, you know, I would imagine at an individual who wants help with their productivity, you can look at their calendar or you can have them do probably some level of like a a time 
journal or something, <laughs> um, like you do a food journal, but it's still going to be a little bit more difficult because there's not always that clear measurement and analysis like there is with salespeople. Exactly. Exactly. And then once we've got the information, then we can start to go to work on how you want to change it and start to give some strategies. And so I was going to circle back and suggest two things that might help on this Mm -hmm. prospecting that we tend to put last on the list. We do everything, but um, that I found work both for when I was in sales, I'm still in sales. I kind of think everybody is at some point. And we worked really well with our sales teams. Two things. One, we can make it a game and tap into adrenaline. Mm -hmm. So, which is always helpful. So I'm going to give myself a goal and then I'm going to give myself a very short amount of time. So you've got 15 minutes and you need to identify four viable prospects. Mm. So you set your timer, you've got your goal and you go. This works for a couple of reasons. One, most salespeople are pretty goal oriented. Two, I have not said that I'm going to have to prospect indefinitely. It's time bound and I can watch the timer click by. So I can, you know, it's a very short burst. It's like a little sprint and then you're done. And then if you want to go back to responding to emails, great. But I've gotten some impact from that sprint, that 15-minute sprint. And then the other strategy that we've used really well is we oscillate stuff I love to do, stuff I hate to do. And, mm-hmm. and all of us are in this world, right? I know you, I bet on your list, you've got that stuff, Elizabeth, that you're like, oh, I don't like to do it. I know I do. And so what you do is you, is the carrot and the stick. So I'm going to start my day with some stuff that I love to do. Then I'm going to do a little of the stuff I don't. And then I'm going to reward myself with stuff I like to do. So if you can oscillate, that helps keep the energy up, the attention, and you can get some work done. I love that that concept of oscillating because I'm just picturing a fan. And uh, you're right. And I even, if I look at my calendar for today, I did that this morning. I had some calls I kind of just didn't want to make. Um And so Mm -hmm. I made sure that beforehand I did something that I really enjoyed and then I blocked out 30 minutes to make those calls. And then after I had another kind of easier task and then I had lunch, which was lovely. And so, you know, having that um, just bookending it with stuff that was nice, it made it much easier to to get done. And so often what we do is it's really easy to stack all the stuff that you enjoy doing at the beginning of the day. And then you schedule from four to five, I'm going to do this really unpleasant task. And from five to six, this other one, and I guess I'm going to have to work a little late from six to seven, I'm going to do this other unpleasant task. And it's really easy when five o'clock rolls around to think, oh, well, you know, I deserve to end my day right now. And so I'll just, I'll do this tomorrow. Somehow right. at the end of tomorrow and it never gets done. And then you're looking up Friday afternoon. You're like, oh, <laughs> Friday afternoon is the worst time to do any of that icky stuff. Like, no, that is like, that's the witching hour. I think we we're, we always advise clients. Let's keep Friday afternoons open and clear and not anything hanging out there. Absolutely. Because um, it's even just that psychological impact. I would imagine of if I've got an unpleasant task on a Friday, I probably am a little more likely to just tell myself I don't have to do it, get myself off the hook because I feel like I've earned it or, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to make the Friday difficult. Not, you know, again, it's that awareness, not realizing, okay, well, am I going to be now set up next week to have all of this week's unpleasant tasks plus all of next week's unpleasant tasks. And, you know, I'm putting my Monday self in a really, in a really difficult place. Um, Exactly. Yes. 
one one best practice that I heard, this kind of goes back to that, um, the, the yes versus no and, and viewing your time as an investment is when you get that request for something pretty far in the future, you know, do you want to speak on a panel? Do you want to attend this party or this conference or this event? Is think about if it were today, would I want to do it? And if not, your future self is not all that different from your current self. And so the you three months from now is going to be like, why did I accept the invitation to do that thing? I don't want to do that. I don't like doing that. And mm-hmm. um, it's it's pretty, it, you know, it's it's pretty easy to just in the moment kind of, you know, be buffeted along and just, you know, say yes to things. And we're, we're conditioned to do that. Mm-hmm. But um, that, you know, that thinking through, you know, the mixing the oscillating the, the the positive and the negative, but also just recognizing, you know, what are the things that I consistently mm-hmm. somehow always fall off my calendar um, and maybe thinking about those. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and Elizabeth, that's where that calendar audit that we do with our client, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned this, you know, looking at the calendar, we call it a calendar audit, looking at your investment statement, you can start to see those trends. And so it becomes easier to say no so one hack that we have for a lot of our clients is a just say no list. Mm. So they've done this audit, they've done this analysis, and they've started to create a list of things that they consistently wish they'd said no to, mm-hmm. or they participated and maybe it wasn't um, the ROI, the return on time investment that they wanted. So we have them create a just say no list so that we can eliminate that decision loop and they just know this is an automatic no for me. And now you can still be very gracious in your no, mm-hmm. but we start a very nice list of these are an automatic no. That's a, a really important concept that you just touched on. And I want to make sure we sit on this a bit so that our listeners um, can think about it, which is that decision fatigue or the decision, you know, the, the number of decisions you have to make. The, the more decisions you put in your day, um, the less you know, you're going to be less effective at making the later ones than the earlier ones. There's, it's just a concept of decision fatigue. And so if every single time you get an invitation to do a thing, you have to process it and think about it and evaluate whether it matches your calendar and think about the goals of the organization and blah, 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 blah. Um, That's a process. And if that's an important part of, you know, your role and of growing your business, you you have to have that process. It has to be, you know, set off every time that request comes in. But if almost every time you get that request, the answer is no, but you still are doing all of that work (laughs) to be able to say, you know what, I don't do panels. I don't speak on panels because it's not part of my job. It doesn't help me. Whenever I get a request to speak on a panel, I just say no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. no. just think of how freeing that is. So often I think we're conditioned to think I have to have a reason to say no. You don't have to say no, I'm I'm double booked on that day. You can just say, no, I, I don't think I'll be able to do it. Or no, you know, yeah. it's just it's it's not a fit. You can be very gracious. It's it, no is an okay thing to say. <laughs> it's a very important thing to say. And I'm so glad you brought up decision fatigue. I, I can't tell you how excited I was, Elizabeth, when I came across Roy Baumister. He's the researcher who coined that term decision fatigue. I was like, oh, at last I've been validated by science. I mean, it just made me so happy. <laughs> My brain gets tired of making decisions. It's true. And one hack that we've used to eliminate decision fatigue, in addition to your the no list, is we are big fans. You might do this of using email templates and signatures. Mm. Yes. Because we get so many routine requests and frequently asked questions. Um, just build a template 
or use your signature, create a new signature. So when you reply to that email, you can just insert, click, here's the answer to the question that I get asked 15 times a week. Because you make the decision, draft it once, and then you just use it over and over again. Back to your point, we're not going through that whole decision matrix. Okay, if this comes in from this person, I do this, here's how we respond. No, you just do that once and then automate it um, using, the, there's great tools in Outlook and Gmail that allow us to do that to circumvent tired, fatigued brains. Absolutely. It's such a quick and easy tip, but a lot of people have never thought about it. Um, anybody in your job, if you were to look at your sent email, you're going to find that there's a certain type of email that you consistently send. Mm-hmm. And what most people do that I know is every time I need to send that email, I search my, I, first of all, I have to think who's the last person I sent that email to. Um, maybe it was Carson Tate. Okay. Right. So I'm going to search my sent email for Carson Tate and I'm like, oh, I've got all these emails. Oh, ha, ha, ha. That's when I sent that email to her. And then I'm going to copy it from that email and I'm going to paste it in a new email. And I've got to scan through that and find every place that I mentioned Carson and your specific stuff. And then, you know, custom and then send. And if instead you had a template with placeholders that were highlighted of where you need to insert custom information and you just pulled it down in like one or two clicks, boom. You're done. You, think of every time you're saving, like, even if it's just five minutes, Five minutes really adds up. And it's the frustration of, oh, it wasn't Carson that I sent the last one to. Now I've got to dig through. Oh, man, who was it? And then you might be bugging other people. <laughs> you know, I've done this. Exactly. I, you know, I, I'll accept the blame. Hey, hey, you know, Charles, my boss. Hey, um, who's the last person that we did this kind of a project with? It's just like, really? <laughs> but, you know, we, you know, taking some time to just build that template out. It's a it's an investment of time that you're making right now to save yourself significant time later. You're going to get a big ROI on that. It's a huge ROI. And in sales, the other value in that is consistent communication. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know that you are answering that client, that cu- customer, depending on the term you use in your company, everyone is getting the same message over and over again. And As a sales team, you really want to hack this, have you guys get together, talk about the frequently sent emails, and then you start sharing different signatures and different templates. So um, everyone is saving time and one person isn't recreating the wheel over and over again. Absolutely. Um, We're big, big believers in the power of team when it comes to sales. So often, I think people view sales to me very wrongly as a very individual thing. And it is a very entrepreneurial um, role. You know, you do have to, as an individual salesperson, almost view yourself as an individual business owner and think about, um, you know, the expenses, think about the activities and, yes. and really do a lot of planning and high level planning that, that people don't always have to do in other jobs. But you still, if you're on a team, there's huge power in that team. And so things like working together, um, you know, to say, okay, here are the 10 types of emails that we consistently send. We've got 10 people on the team. Everybody write one of them, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, according to who has the best templates for each. It, you can really reduce um, that initial burden of of building out a lot of like things like templates and processes uh, just by kind of spreading it across the team. And and so many people just for some reason they have this perception of sales that salespeople aren't going to do that. And in my experience, they are um, because it benefits all of them. Absolutely. I mean, that's how we worked. I mean, I was on a team at Bristol, and that's how we did really well. As there was a team, we supported each other, and we shared information, and we work together. And I think collectively, if you come together as a team, if we go back to one of the things we were talking about earlier around 
impact versus output and a lot of the busy work. If a team mm-hmm. can just come together around some of these standard emails and templates, what we've seen with our clients is it very quickly becomes a process conversation mm-hmm. and we can start to identify where there might be some busy work, some things that aren't working as a team that aren't driving revenue. And now we can start to look at, all right, what do we want to do about this? Can we eliminate it? Is there a faster way? How can we tag team to one person attends this meeting on behalf of the team, shares notes, and we rotate so everybody doesn't have to sit in on that call. You really can start to look at optimizing performance collectively and individually just through a simple email conversation. Absolutely. I think... um brainstorming as a concept often gets kind of a bad name because people are bad at brainstorming, (laughs) but there are, (laughs) there are good, you know, people brainstorm on things that don't need brainstorming or they have the wrong people involved. Um, or they, they have these, you know, endless, just kind of throwing meetings, throwing ideas out when, when that's not really the right situation, but things like, Hey guys, um, we want to help you be more productive. We want to help you be able to spend your time in such a way that, um, you're getting the most out of it, that you're, you're driving outcomes, you're driving, um, you know, revenue and success. And so we want to either virtually over an email thread or in Slack or something, or in person, we're going to get together for 30 minutes. And I just want everybody to share your frustrations. It's amazing what comes out. I had this, this was, man, this was years and years ago. It's got to be at this point, at least 10 years ago. I remember it was with a client in the UK and um, we were doing some work with them on time management. And so Mm -hmm. we just had the team together and I had a flip chart and they were just sharing, what are your frustrations with time management? Just boom, boom, billions. Like it's just, the number was just, and, and, you know, faster than you can keep operating them down. But then we flipped it and we said, who has best practices that you want to share for time management that you've, you know, figured out for yourself that you want to share with the team just as many. And Mm -hmm. it was, it was amazing how people really learned from each other. Now there is something though, that that actually sparked in me. I know that you have a focus on, which is figuring out the right kinds of best practices that work for individuals, because mm-hmm. something that works for you might not work for me. Can you tell our listeners about that model? Sure. So when I was working at Bristol and helping myself and my team, and then when I went out and started my own firm, I quickly realized that the quote, best practices, to your point, Elizabeth, mm-hmm. didn't work for everybody. And so in graduate school, I did research. I was like, why is this? And it's not rocket science, but it's because we all think and process information differently. So we all have something called a cognitive style. It's how you think, process, and communicate. And so what my research revealed is that there are four different work styles, or what we call productivity styles, that relate to how you think and process. So you've got the prioritizer, who's analytical, linear, data, fact-based, succinct, direct to the point. So they're the ones that are looking at the sales report and they can tell you every facet of the data, how it was (laughs) figured. I mean, they know those numbers down to the 15th decimal point. And then you have the planners and the planners are organized, sequential, linear. Well, the linear is the prioritizer. These guys are sequential. They're the ones that have the checklist and they they like to Mm -hmm. put things on their list they've already done. Uh, They like structure. They're the ones that like file folders. These are the folks that, quote, look organized. So they're the ones, at least in Bristol, they were the ones when we, you'd get in their car, you know, they'd have the little hanging file folders and everything would have a little <laughs> cubby, a little spot, right? The little first organized. ones to adopt the Rolodex back in the day, I'm sure. You are, yes. They're the ones that love office supplies. 
And then you've got the third style is the arranger. And these folks, their work style, they tend to be more relational, more communicative. They are really persuasive. These are the folks that have color-coded pens. They like to write things down. They are the folks that you get in the car with them. And by the end of the 10 minute drive, you've told them all about your vacation, your pet goldfish. They just know the people. He's the people, people, right? Yeah. Um, I loved having an arranger on my team because they always knew the name of like the scrub nurse. It's very helpful. And then the visualizer, they're thinking these are the big picture thinkers, right? They're the ones that are the ideators. They're my adrenaline junkies. If something's due today at four, they're going to get it to you at like 4.07. The last <laughs> minute squeaking in. Big picture ideas. Their workspaces look like they're exploding paper. They're highly visual, out of sight, out of mind. They get a lot of work done, but they get really bored very easily. So these styles are all very, very different. Mm-hmm. So if you try to help a visualizer organize, structure their day, and you're like, okay, I need you to schedule your time in 15-minute increments, they're going to run screaming <laughs> for the hills. They're like, who are you and why are you trying to help me? Because that sounds like sheer torture. <laughs> Versus the prioritizer's like, oh, I love that. Let's do that. That's great. My visualizer needs to think in themes, theme days, theme chunks. You can't put too many boundaries around them. So once I figured this out, we developed our assessment. It was a game changer for our clients and for our teams, because now we can identify your style and start to feed strategies and tools that really fundamentally align to how you think and process information. Absolutely. I I really just love that framework. It's so simple. I'm sure people just as they were listening, were probably able to at least within like two buckets, yes. maybe self-diagnose where they are. Um, and and it, probably if you work closely with people or back when you could work closely with people, but if you work, you know, um, next to people uh, and, and get a sense of how they work, you could probably uh, sell, you know, evaluate maybe your closest colleagues. But having that framework is so helpful because I think, especially as a leader, it's really easy to think this works for me. Why can't you just do it that way? And You've got people who maybe say, I, I tried it. It just doesn't work for me. And it, it creates all this frustration. Um, managers feel like their people are being like rebellious. But it's really <laughs> just they're different people from you. Right. Right. They're, they're not being rebellious. And there's nothing wrong with them. And they're not mm-hmm. bad at productivity or organization. I cannot stand any of those labels. That's not true. It's just the tools and techniques don't align with how they think and process. Okay. I just need a different tool. That's okay. Absolutely. Yep. We all have a system. It might not look like a system to somebody else, but we all have a system. And then figuring out what are ways that my system could be better for me, not more like somebody else's system, but better for me. Because, you know, I know people that I could give them like the most lovely, perfect process that works perfectly for me and they would crash and burn. And it's not even that that system or process is bad. It's that it just doesn't match the person. Exactly. Exactly. And I think when you think about our leaders, our sales leaders, and what you were talking about, Elizabeth, is that is where the crash and burn happens Mm -hmm. is this one size fits all, it has to be done this way versus let's focus on impact and results. So I'm going to be really, really clear on what I want to accomplish in the goal. 
And I'm going to be very relaxed on how you get there. Obviously, it has to be ethical and in alignment with your company's values. But other than that, I'm going to be very open on that path, the how. You just have to hit the goal. That's something that we always share with our clients is even um, you have to be aligned on philosophy, the the why, the big picture. You know, what are you what are you just trying for? But the mechanics mm-hmm. let them be up to the people within realms. You know, what I always tell people, even when you're designing like a CRM system is you have to figure out what points on the process are mandated checkpoints. And you should have some. You shouldn't say, just do whatever you want. And, you know, when you close business, let us know. Um, You should probably have a few checkpoints along the way. But what you don't want is, here's our 27-step sales process, (laughs) and you need to submit this paperwork at, you know, these different places. And here are the five levels of approval. You don't need people then. You just program that. Have a computer, have a robot do it. Um, So finding that that healthy middle ground is really important. And then let people do what they do best. You know, there's magic in seeing different people with different personalities, different approaches, um, all be successful in different ways. I find that just so delightful. It's, it's, it's just one of those things that just makes you recognize the, the diversity of people. And, um, and you can always learn, even from somebody with a completely different style from you, you'll get an idea that you can then twist and apply to your style um, in a way that, that makes sense. Because all right. they're offering a different perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's always valuable. Now, I, I did want to spend a couple of minutes because I know you're writing a new book uh, talking about employee engagement. I'd love to hear just a bit about um, kind of how you got interested in that topic and if, if at all it builds on what you've been working on when it comes to productivity. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I have a new book. I'm really excited. As every author is, I'm sure Elizabeth, it shows up on your podcast. We're all very excited. So my new book comes out October 6th and it is called Own It, Love It, Make It Work. How to Turn Any Job into Your Dream Job. And what I realized after many years in the productivity space and optimizing performance as once performance is optimized and the swirl of this busyness, this just activity for activity's sake is no longer there and you're really driving for results and impact, the next thing people start to ask is, hmm, is this it? Mm. What's, what's the meaning? What's the purpose? What's the connection? How am I growing in my career? What is the meaning of work for me? Mm-hmm. Am I being compensated the way I need to for what I'm providing And so as we started working with clients, we realized that what was missing in this employee engagement conversation was you, Mm. the employee. So if I want to be acknowledged and recognized for my contributions, if I want to make sure that my compensation is in alignment, if I want to grow my career, if I want meaning and purpose in my work, then I've got to know what that looks like for me. I can't assume that my employer is going to provide it for me if I'm not clear. And so we talk about this in terms of the social contract, this give and take. So as a sales member, I'm giving you my relationship skills, my ability to sell your product and driving revenue. And in return, you're obviously compensating me. And what else is part of that relationship? Mm. And so how do we create this vibrant, rich, mutually beneficial relationship around work. 
that's um, that's incredibly powerful. I am going to pencil you, and I'm not making the request right now, but uh, I'd love to have you back in October to talk about the book after it comes out because that just sounds so incredibly powerful. And you know, like you said, there, there's a level of problem related to I'm struggling with my productivity. I'm struggling with you know getting done what I want to get done, but that might be masking some level of I don't even want to be here. And Absolutely. the reason that I consistently am struggling to get done what I need to get done is I don't want to do it. Um, and and yet there there can be ways. I love that, you know, make any job your dream job because sometimes it's not that you're at the wrong company, but it's that you're you're thinking about it the wrong way or you haven't discovered and processed and thought about how you're actually contributing to something that you can be excited about, even though you feel like what you're doing is pointless. Um, so I'm I'm really excited to read that book. Well, thank you. And I'll take you up on that. And I've got great stories. And there's a really important piece there around, we call it job crafting. And so mm. aligning your unique strengths and skills and how you derive meaning and purpose with what the organization needs to create this really rich professional experience. So I'd love to Definitely. chat more. <laughs> Definitely. All right. Well, speaking of books, a question we always like to ask as we end the show is, what are some books that you would recommend to our listeners? So I thought about that. So I'm shamelessly going to plug my first book. So full disclosure, <laughs> shameless plug. I hear you. I know you'll tell me about it on social. So the first one, um, my first book is called Work Simply, Embracing the Power of Your Productivity Style. And it's a deep dive into the productivity styles we talked about and a roadmap on how to create what we call a custom productivity toolkit. Wow. Then yep. the second book I would recommend is Essentialism. This is really helpful in terms on getting clear on what is, what's essential and what's not. And it goes back to that core concept that I think is so fundamental around impact versus mm -hmm. output, that busy work. And then my third one for our leaders who predominantly we're listening to, we're chatting with, is Dare to Lead, Brene Brown. Mm. We are in the time of massive upheaval and shifting in how we work, why we work, and what we work on. And the authenticity, the vulnerability, and the, the ability to really connect, I think, for leaders is more important now than it has ever been. Absolutely. That's that's a great one. I will highly second that recommendation. All right, Carson, I have I have so loved talking to you today, and I'm sure our listeners have uh, loved hearing from you as well. So if you want people to learn more about you, more about your work, where should they go? So they can go to our website, workingsimply.com. And we love to connect. I love to connect on social. So Carson Tate on LinkedIn. All right. Perfect. Um, thank you so, so much for speaking with me today, Carson. Elizabeth, thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. I'd love to have you. All right. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and the resources for everything that Carson and I have been talking about at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 256. Be sure to tune in on Friday for another inspirational episode. Um, remember, it is the last days to check out my presentation at the International Institute for Learning's Leadership and Innovation Online Conference. It's available through June 7th. You can use the code FREDERICK, F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K, for $10 off your registration. Don't forget to check out the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com insights. If you enjoyed today's show, please recommend us to a friend. That'll help more people to discover the show. And if you're not yet subscribed, make sure to do that 
That'll help your every new episode as soon as it goes live. You can subscribe for free wherever you're listening right now. We would love your feedback. You can leave us ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts or email us with direct feedback, questions, and guest suggestions at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ariana Miskell, Laura Marchoff, Mark Krogan, and me, Elizabeth Frederick. Happy selling!